Almighty God, from whom all things come and to whom they'll return, we pray, Lord, that you'd open our hearts and our minds, uh, open to us your blessed word, that we might be able to live like Jesus, that we might be transformed to be like him. Come, Holy Spirit, and take these words and make them the words of God, uh, where we speak for you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So I wonder where you think God is. That might sound like an odd question, but it's a question I get asked quite a lot. Where is God? Uh, Usually by children, uh, because children ask the best questions. Uh, Almost always they ask the best questions. And uh, where do you think God is? It's a big one for them. I, I wonder whether actually that question really gets to a problem that's at the heart of how we think about God. It might sound like a a funny question to ask, but it actually gets right to the heart of how we think about God. Very often, uh, silly questions do get to the heart of how we think about God. Have you ever heard the phrase, it's it's a question of angels on a pinhead or something like that? They're debating angels on the head of a pin, how many angels can feel on the head of a pin. It's usually used as a as a picture of somebody who's, painting, who's discussing endlessly something that's pointless and doesn't affect real life. Uh, that was actually a real question that was debated in the medieval church. There was a real, uh, there was a real debate about this, how many angels can fit on the head of a pin. Okay, uh, You laughed. It's a really important question. It matters because it's asking the question, does, do, does God exist, do angels exist in physical space? How do we understand God? Where is God? Is God something you can touch, like a pinhead, or is he different from a pinhead? So lay off the scholastics is basically what I'm saying. Many of us grew up with an idea of God that was a bit like this. This is the painting of God the Father uh, by Cima de... I'm going to get this wrong. Cima de Cognegliano. Cima de Cognegliano, the Italian Renaissance artist. It's from about 500 years ago. Now... I have obviously never met Chima de Canegliano, but if I do meet him in heaven, I will say to him, Chima, I feel like there were certain problems with your painting. First of all, God isn't an old white man. Okay, that might sound like an odd thing, but actually that's a picture that a lot of us grew up with, that God is an old white man. Jesus is a young white man with blonde hair. I'm afraid no he isn't, and no he isn't. We don't have time to go into the manifold problems with that view of God, but there they are. One of the biggest problems, though, with this picture, and I'm using this not to have a go at the artwork, which I think is exquisite, but to uh, make it representative of this idea of God up there, is that he's a long way away from us. Many of us grow up with that idea or, or unconsciously have the idea of a God who is distant, who's the same as us, but somehow he's just really big, and he's very, very far away. I'm not quite sure where this idea comes from. It, it strikes me that it's quite similar to the kind of Greek idea, that the gods live on a mountain somewhere. But I don't know if that's where it comes from. Wherever it comes from, it's not Christian. There's an irony that Gima de Conegliano is writing, uh, sorry, is painting Christian art for Christians because this is a very un-Christian or non-Christian view of God. For Christians, both God is both transcendent, that means he's above everything. 
He's beyond everything. His existence is more than we could possibly understand. And yet he's also imminent. That means he's closer than we could possibly say. If you think of the closest relationship you can have, the closest contact you can have with someone in in human life, God is closer than that. He's closer to my skin than my watch is because he fills everything. He's transcendent and he's imminent. He's out there, but he's also down here. God is the God of eternity in whom all things exist, and yet he's also present in every place and filling everything. Now this shouldn't be a surprise, even if it's a really big idea to get your head around. I'm not asking anybody to explain it back to me. It shouldn't be a surprise though. We believe that Jesus is God incarnate, God made in human form. In the words of the creed, he is light of light, true God of true God, and yet he's also a man. He's as much a man as I am. Actually, uh, one of my specialities as an academic subject is Greek orthodoxy. Uh, I'm not asking you to share my interest, but there it is. It's interesting. If you go into a Greek Orthodox church, it is covered with pictures. I mean, just wall-to-wall pictures. You often can't see any of the walls because there are so many pictures. In front of you, on here, there wouldn't be a blank wall with kind of cool lighting. There's a wall of pictures. And the pictures include loads and loads of pictures of Christ. And there was a big argument about this in the early church. In about, uh, it was the Seventh Ecumenical Council. It happens about 900 AD. There was a massive argument about whether this was okay or not. And in the end, the church, that is to say, all of the major bishops from all over the Christian world, got together and they agreed that this was perfectly fine. More than that, it was important. You could draw Jesus... In a way, you can't draw God because he has a human form. Put it this way, if he were here, you could photograph him. God is transcendent, but he's also imminent. We believe in Jesus, who is very God of very God, and yet also has a body as real as mine. God is different from his creation, but he's not distant from it. We know God. We experience God. He actively sustains us and upholds our lives. He makes life itself possible. He is the reason we exist and the means by which we do so. Paul quoted a Greek poet and he said, In him we live and move and have our being. He is the great organising principle. If you have a scientific mind, God is the thing that stops entropy from destroying the world. Okay, in creation, uh, everything tends towards destruction. Okay, it's quite bleak, the universe, to be honest. Things get further and further apart, they tend towards chaos, and yet not on this world. Actually, on this world, in this moment, in human beings, however you believe in creation, whether you accept that God created through evolution or through a different method, I'm not interested in the debate for the moment. However you believe it, it is operating in exactly the opposite way to the way the rest of the universe works. It's as if the universe as a whole is going downwards, getting further and further apart, getting colder and colder, getting more and more chaotic, and this world is going upwards. Getting more and more complex, getting more and more ingenious, getting more and more beautiful. God is the reason. 
He stands behind everything, behind every breath we take. How can this be? The one who stands behind waterfalls and tears. How can God be the one in whom everything exists and yet also be with us here now? Well, part of how we explain this is the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. We believe that the Spirit of Jesus moves in the world and that we can encounter him, have relationship with him, be filled with his power and be used by him. That's what Christians believe, have always believed. To receive the Spirit, to be united with Him, is to become truly alive. It is to find purpose and wholeness. Now lots of people intuit that this is the case. We live in a very spiritual age. Lots of people have spiritual experiences. It might be if you go and stand by the Grand Canyon. And you, I haven't done it, but I'm told that when you stand by something so big, you suddenly feel very, very small. And it is a humbling spiritual experience. Others of us have spiritual experiences in other circumstances. We all intuit there is something bigger than us that we are moving towards, or we should be moving towards. The big question is, what of these experiences are from God? How do we recognise when the Holy Spirit is moving in us? How do we recognise that which is going to bring us life and joy and fullness? And how do we pursue it? What is it that God, if he's here now, if he's closer than my watch, wants me to do? Why is he here? Why is he coming to us? And that's what Paul is addressing, St. Paul is addressing in 1 Corinthians 12 to 14. I'll spend a little bit of time introducing it because it's going to occupy us between now and November. And here's the big idea of this talk. This is the big idea. The Holy Spirit is God with us, giving us power to worship, to work, and to war for the kingdom of God. The Holy Spirit is God with us, giving us power to worship, to work, and to war for the kingdom of God. Spirit is God, he's with us, to worship, to work, and to war for the kingdom of God. Amen. Now we're going to we're going to read now from 1 Corinthians 12 and uh, verses 1 to 11. Do you want to come do that? Who's going to come do that? I'm going to give you this Bible because it's exactly the same as the one I've got on the screen. Oh. <clears throat> Now about the gifts of the Spirit, brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, somehow or other, you were influenced and led astray to dumb idols. Therefore, I want you to know that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus be cursed, and no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Spirit. There are different kinds of gifts but the same Spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but in all of them and in every one, it is the same God at work. Now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. To one there is given through the Spirit a message of wisdom, 
to another a message of knowledge by means of the same spirit, to another faith by the same spirit, to another gifts of healings by that one spirit, to another miraculous powers, to another prophecy, to another distinguishing between spirits, to another speaking in different kinds of tongues, and to still another the interpretation of tongues. All these are the work of one and the same spirit, and he distributes them to each one just as he determines. Amen. This is the word of God. Now these are um, weird verses for modern ears. Uh, If you've been around churches a long time in the kind of stream of churches that I'm in uh, and that we're now in, which is uh, usually called the charismatic stream, these are verses that you might be very familiar with. But if you've not been, then... um, there are lots and lots of questions people have. And what is Paul talking about when he talks about tongues? And why does he keep talking about prophecy? Uh, isn't that for old men with big beards in the Old Testament? Why is Paul talking about healing? What does that mean? What does it have to do with medicine and all of the rest of it? And I'm going to answer each one of those questions, hopefully, as we go through the next few weeks. We're going to explore what it is that St. Paul is talking about. But for now, I want to take a big look at what it is the Holy Spirit is actually doing. What God with us wants and is working. And Paul actually covers this fairly systematically. So verses 1 to 3. Paul talks that the Holy Spirit, says that the Holy Spirit is the God who brings us spiritual worship. The Holy Spirit glorifies Jesus and he leads people to him. This is the defining test, the ultimate test, of whether an experience is from God or not. There are lots of spiritual experiences in the world. There are lots of spirits in the world. The one which says whether something is from God or not is whether directly or indirectly it leads us to worship Jesus. There is no other bottom line. Uh, If you are around the church for long enough, you will realise, and this goes for every tradition, that there are movements that are controversial. People start new ways of doing church, whether you're Catholic, and uh, if you're a 16th century Catholic and the Jesuits started up, people are not sure at all about them. They keep going to different places and starting schools and all the rest of it. Is this really a work of God? The answer to the question is, does it lead people to worship God through Jesus? If you are uh, of an age that you can uh, remember the questions about the charismatic movement, the question ultimately is always, does it lead people to worship God through Jesus? More than that, does it lead us to worship him with our lips, in what we say and what we pray, And with our lives, in what we do. The Holy Spirit is present in every moment of every day. He's there in every molecule of every metre of life. As you walk across the playing fields to get to this church, if you did this morning, the Holy Spirit was present in every blade of grass, in every drop of dew. He was there in the breeze and in the rain. He was there when your alarm clock sounded this morning and when the shower head didn't turn on and when it was too hot and when it was too cold. In every moment working to bring us back to God through Jesus. He opens our minds and enlivens our mouths. He inspires prayer and praise and draws joy from our hearts. God's spirit is the reason any of us come to God in the first place. 
No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Spirit of God. Naturally speaking, we don't do that. We turn in on ourselves. We become self-absorbed and self-obsessed and self-justified. And the Spirit of God comes along and says, I want you to see what's really there. And worship the one who made it. He's the reason we're able to say and to mean that Jesus is Lord. All true worship comes from the Holy Spirit. And without him, no true worship is possible. Now that's not to say that you have to worship like we do. But even if you are in the most liturgical tradition, you pray from a book that people have prayed for from, uh, from for over 500, 1,000, 1,500 years, you can only do it in truth if the Holy Spirit enables you to. All true worship comes from the Holy Spirit and without Him no true worship is possible. Moreover, if you want to go deeper in worship, if you want to experience more joy and peace, if you want to understand Scripture in a living way and pray from the heart, then we need the Holy Spirit in our lives. He's the one who enables us to do it. I was praying about this and thinking about it this week and uh, I was thinking about how every single major move that I can think of of the Spirit of God in the church in the last 500 years has resulted in more hymns and songs of praise. It's just an empirical fact. I'm not justifying it, I'm not arguing from it for the moment, I'm just observing it. What came out of the Wesleyan revival? Hymns. Right? If I were to start singing some of them, 99% of us will have heard at least one of Charles Wesley's hymns. It's an amazing thing, isn't it? 300 years later, we all know his songs of worship. The charismatic movement, Pentecostalism, more and more hymns. Why? Because when people experience God, they want to speak it out, they want to praise. Actually, it's not just in the Western Church. The Eastern Church, uh, Eastern Orthodox Church, uses the divine liturgy of St. John Chrysostom. Did you know that? That's what it's called. If you you went down to uh, Brookfield, uh, near uh, Guildford, to the Eastern Orthodox Monastery there, and went in, that's the liturgy they're praying every day. Liturgy of John Chrysostom. A man who was so filled with the Holy Spirit that thousands came to hear him preach. And he wrote down a whole load of prayers. And people are still praying them now. When the Spirit comes, praise and prayer come. Our lives get transformed to be worship. When the Spirit comes, we start to work. Our lives get transformed. Not just our lyrics. If you want to understand scripture in a living way and pray from the heart, if you want to experience deeper joy and peace in worship, then the Holy Spirit is the thing to pursue. So the Holy Spirit brings worship. Spirit brings service. This is 4 to 7. Spiritual worship, now spiritual service. There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but in all of them, and in everyone, it is the same God at work. Now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. The Spirit inspires worship, yet He also inspires service. And empowers service. Every true work of the Spirit is directed at building up and strengthening others. Usually in the church. His work is other-focused. 
If you want to tell if something is from the Holy Spirit, first of all, look if it brings people to God through Jesus. Secondly, look as if look if the fruit, the outworking of it, is that it builds up other people. The minute someone comes to you, usually men, sometimes women, and says, I have the Spirit of God, and start asking you to do stuff for them, rather than them doing stuff for others, you should beware. The manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. His work is other-focused. Again, this shouldn't be surprised. A surprise. Another name for the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Jesus. That's how Paul speaks about him in Romans. The same Jesus who said that he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. God wants to work through us to care for others. God wants to work through us to fight for others. He wants to empower you and me to fight sin. Selfishness, pride, self-centeredness. He wants to work in us so that we overcome it so that we can bless others. So that we can reveal Christ to others. At the centre of all the Spirit's work is this turning away from self-interest and seeking to build up others, whether through the normal actions of everyday life, or unusual ones like praying for them to be healed, or sharing what you think God might be saying to them. The Holy Spirit is wanting to empower us to be the presence of Christ for each other and for other people. Now this has implications for us. It means, first of all, we need to pursue the power to do it. We have a responsibility to pursue God so that we can be effective at working for others. We have a responsibility. The power we receive, the privilege we have in knowing and being filled with the Spirit is not for our own good, but for the good of others. Now, we actually sense, I think, that this is the case. It's a regular motif in modern myths. For those who uh, have ears to hear, heed the gospel of Spider-Man. For those of you who don't know who Spider-Man is, shame on you. I'm picking Spider-Man because he's archetypal of this, right? Uh, Spider-Man is a comic book character. He's also been in something like seven movies, eight movies, nine, something like that now. I lose track. Uh, One of the biggest characters of all time. If you go into Tesco's, I will guarantee you can, without looking, Tesco at Brooklyn, you can find five Spider-Man toys without even trying. There is a motif that runs through Spider-Man. This is a boy who's bitten by a radioactive spider and he gains enormous power because of it. He becomes very strong like a spider is. He can climb walls, he can shoot webs. Uh, He's incredibly popular. And all the way through the stories, there is this motif that comes back again and again and again. And you actually, once you start to see it, you can't stop seeing it in all of the modern myths that are made into movies, into Star Wars and into... uh, superhero films and dare I say into other films as well that I don't bother seeing with great power comes great responsibility with great power comes great responsibility now I doubt that when they wrote that the authors of Spider-Man were trying to make a theological point right it's not likely that they had 1 Corinthians 12 in mind 
And it wouldn't be quite the same if Uncle Ben had sat with Peter Parker, who's Spider-Man's real name, in a car and said to him, Now, Peter, I want you to know that the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. It doesn't have the, quite the same ring to it. More likely, we intuit, we instinctively understand that this is the case, that we are given the opportunity and the power to help others and we should take it. That when we are given power and wealth, when we are given spiritual power and spiritual authority, it should be used for the common good. God wants to use you to bless your neighbour. And he has the resources to do it. God who has everything wants to use you to bless them and he can make you able to do it. Spiritual warfare. I included this as a jarring one. Brings us to the final characteristic of the Spirit's work. Verses 8 to 11. What is it that he wants to achieve through us? What is it that God with us wants to do through us? Well, it's the same thing that he wanted to do through Jesus when Jesus was alive and in the world. St. John says, Jesus' best friend says, the reason the Son of God appeared, so the whole reason that Jesus came, was to destroy the devil's work. 1 John 3.8 The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. The reason the Spirit of God fills each one of us is so that we can play our part in destroying the devil's work. Christian life is not one of passage, uh, being a passenger, but one of being purposeful. Christ came to fight for us. He came to undo evil and its consequences and strengthen good. He came to fight Satan and sin. The Holy Spirit does the same thing in us and through us. This is actually what lies behind the list that Paul gives. We'll look at the list in detail another time. I'm going to go through it. So hold your questions. But behind each one of these ideas is the idea of men and women being equipped and empowered, given power to resist evil. By choosing well, by acting in faith, by healing sickness, by speaking truth, by determining whether something is good and needs to be affirmed, or something is wicked and needs to be resisted. I was praying this morning for my men's meeting tonight. And as I was praying, I said, Lord, what I want to be myself is a spiritual warrior. That might not be a helpful metaphor for you. If it's not, leave it. There are others you can have. For me, it sums up a life of purpose. Fighting sin in myself in order that I can bless others. Resisting evil and affirming good. And looking for the Spirit's power to do it. I can give you an example of this when it happens supernaturally in my life. Uh, some of you will know that I am somebody who has struggled with depression. I say that in order to normalise it. I am not trying to glorify it. But if you're a guy and you're struggling with depression, then join the club. One of the elements of depression is spiritual. I'm convinced of. There are medical aspects to it. There are physical aspects to it. There are uh, emotional. 
And there can be spiritual aspects. And I remember when I was in a particularly dark place, and I had really struggled, and we couldn't seem to make any progress out of it. It wasn't until Heather came and prayed for me, when I couldn't pray myself, that somehow I felt something break. The power of it broke. It wasn't that I was then leaping for joy and jumping around. But it was just as if before it had been impossible to see how I would ever come around. And suddenly it was possible to find a solution. For this reason the Son of God appeared to destroy the devil's work. Thank God that there was a spiritual warrior in that situation with me who was able to take her part in destroying the devil's work. Now I'm not just talking about what we call supernatural. I'm going to rip that category apart later. But I'm not just talking about what we call the supernatural here. God heals through penicillin as much as he does through prayer. I had a friend, Heather's father, a lot of you will be praying, have been praying for him, thank you for that. He was, has received excellent news from his cancer treatment. He, uh, this church and lots of churches have been praying for him. He had extremely severe cancer of the liver and of the colon and has had chemotherapy and has been prayed for and has had an operation and was then declared to be cancer free, which the doctor couldn't believe. And it was a great relief. And I went and saw a friend of mine, and a very good friend of mine, and he said, do you think it was uh, the doctors who healed him or God? And I, I thought to myself, oh, bless, bless my friend, I, I, love, I love him dearly. He made a category mistake. Right? It's not the doctors or God. God works through the doctors. Right? God works through penicillin, and he works through prayer. What I would say is that it's in those moments where God does something we don't expect that we notice him at work. I'm convinced that's the reason sometimes why God steps in and does something which we call miraculous. Because it's just like him saying, hello, I was here all along and you guys have literally been ignoring me the entire time. So now I've done something without you, maybe we can get back to talking. And that happens. It happens in this church. Uh, I can give you three examples from this year. Uh, there was uh, someone who came to me who had been diagnosed with a growth in, her, in their ear. And a doctor had done a scan on it, identified it, was sending her on for another uh, serious scan to determine how uh, severe the problem was. Uh, came to me, was worried. We prayed, Heather and I prayed for this person, anointed them with oil, and then went for the second scan and the growth had disappeared. Uh, another person... Uh, I said a word saying I just feel like I was praying this morning God said there's someone who's got serious back pain and uh, I want to pray for you if that's you and they came up to me and at the end they said you said you wanted to pray for someone with back pain well my back's killing me and so I prayed with another lady uh, for this person and anointed them with oil and uh, two days later they came in and said don't know what you did but my back's much better I thought well two days is nothing isn't it Saw them again another three days later. They were so full of joy. They said to me, I've got to get you working on my neck now. <laughs> right? God does do the supernatural. And he does do the natural. What we call the natural. He works through penicillin. He works through prayer. It's in those moments of life when God does something unusual. We see him most clearly. My point in all this is that we are saved from something. But also 
for something. Underlying everything Paul teaches in this passage is the idea that your life has a purpose. To be united with God, to become a whole human being, filled as you were designed to be with God's Spirit, to flee sin, that requires self-discipline. There's a lot of grace, there is amazing grace. And you've got to work with it. And death, and do good. The Eastern Church calls this theosis. It means literally in Greek to become like God and united with him. It takes faith, it takes discipline, but more than anything else, it requires that our lives be full of the Holy Spirit. What does this mean? Three practical applications before we finish. First, if anyone here is involved in a spiritual activity that doesn't ultimately lead to the worship and glory of God through Jesus, then you need to stop it. Sorry if that sounds brutal. But I'm not really sorry. Sorry, not sorry. As the kids say. I'm told. If it doesn't end up at Christ, then it's not God's Spirit who's leading it. And it can sound trivial... But actually, I've dealt with people, I've prayed with people who have suffered enormously because they've dabbled with things that they didn't really understand, that were beyond their control, and then have ended up hurting them spiritually and personally and becoming destructive for relationships with God and with others. It's as simple as that. If it doesn't lead to God through Christ, then stop it. Second, let's be filled with the Holy Spirit. We're going to spend a month and a half now looking at the Holy Spirit and his gifts and how he wants to fill our lives. And yet we need to be filled with him. How do you become filled with the Holy Spirit? Same way you become filled with anybody. When I was wanting to woo Heather and ask her into my life, I needed to repent. There were things I had to stop doing. Enormous baggy trousers had to go. I love those trousers. Goodness me, I was thinking about them the other day. You couldn't see my feet. They dragged along the floor. They were blue corduroy that become purple with age. I don't understand how that happened, but anyway. And they were so old and tired that they literally fell apart as I was wearing them. I love those trousers. Repentance. Heather hates those trousers. Let me tell you guys, you want a girl, change your trousers. <laughs> Repentance. Is there anything between you and God that you need to stop and say sorry for? If you want to be filled with the Holy Spirit, do it. Believe. Believe that God loves you and that he wants to be with you. To transform you, to fill you and then empower you to do his work. Heather didn't become my wife without me asking. And believe me, I had to believe that she was going to say yes before I would ask. I had to trust. Every step of the way there was trust. I was stood at the front of a church in a hired suit with hundreds of my friends and family around and Heather's friends and family around waiting and the clock ticked by and it was three o'clock and she wasn't there. And you're sitting there thinking, standing there thinking, I've got to trust her, I've got to trust her that she's coming. First and only time she's been late for anything in her life, and it was her wedding. 
She would, she would want me to tell you that it wasn't her fault. She was ready, everybody else wasn't ready, she had to wait for the car. You've got to have faith. You want to be filled with the Holy Spirit? Have faith. Trust. Believe that God loves you and wants to be with you, to transform you, to fill you, and then empower you to do His work. Ask Him to fill you with, your Holy, with His Holy Spirit. To come into every part of your life and to give it meaning and purpose. And then finally, receive. At some point, we've got to accept yes as an answer. That means faith. It's accepting that we've asked God to do what He's promised. And when we've asked Him to do what He promises, He does it. If you have repented and believed that He wants to give you the Spirit, then accept that He has and act in faith. It can help to pray with someone. If you read the book of Acts, very often people pray with other people. Uh, Because then there's someone else there who can reassure you and talk you through it. And then third thing. Go and do the Spirit's work and carry on being filled. Begin the discipline of asking God what He wants in every conversation and action. This is another moment of which God has given you. What does He want you to do with it? This is another moment in which you can love God and love your neighbour. How? Maybe someone's popped into your mind and you think, I wonder how they're doing. What's at them? Maybe you feel challenged to stop something. Take a moment, pray you're sorry, and stop it. Maybe you see someone who's hurt and you can help. Resolve to do what we sense God calling us to do. My friends, to be filled with the Holy Spirit is the first step on the path to encountering and being united with God himself, which is the greatest joy and privilege of our hearts and the greatest purpose in our lives. Indeed, it is the only thing that gives meaning to life. Let's take that step. We're going to stop and we're going to pray and we're going to be quiet. Just going to leave some silence. There's going to be some pictures playing on the screen. It's a chance just to pray and ask God what it is that He's speaking to you. And then we're going to finish with a hymn. Come, Holy Spirit. Come speak to each one of us. Lord, I pray that you would be ministering grace to our hearts, Lord, that you would be speaking what it is you have to us. Maybe you want to respond by putting something right, just in the quietness of this moment, put it right with God. Maybe you want to ask for the Holy Spirit to fill you. Come, Holy Spirit, fill us. Fill us with God himself. As we pray, I'm just going to share three things that I felt God wanted me to share this morning. I had a picture of a lighthouse in a storm and a boat heading towards it and there were rocks under the water. And I sense that God is saying to one of us or more of us, you sense that you are heading towards rocks and you are worried about how you will ever make it through. If you keep your eyes on the lighthouse, you will be safe. Keep your eye on me, my child, God says. Keep your eye on me and I will keep you safe. Sense that someone here might need prayer, particularly for a hand that was injured. If that's you and you'd like prayer for a hand that was injured, then come and seek me afterwards and I will pray for you with Heather. 
And then finally, I just had a sense that there's one of us, one of the guys, who is really searching for meaning in life. And I, want, I feel like God is wanting to say to you, I am the meaning. Pursue me and everything else will follow. Again, if that's you and you want to pray with someone, then feel free to come and chat with me. Or if, it's not, if you don't want to pray with someone, then just respond now. Come Holy Spirit.